That 14 seconds of music just makes you want to dance, does it not? Yes? It does me. So here's what I think we're going to do this morning. We're going we're gonna to play this again, but you are going to dance for me, okay? So you are kind of awkward, like, uh, no, is he really going to do this? No, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a deal with you like I did the first service, okay? Uh, if you guys are sharp and you're with it the whole day, then you're going to pass the test. But if not, then at the end, we're going to bust a move, okay? And so I'm, I'm hoping that you'll stay with me uh, this entire time. Um, this is actually week three of a series called Bust a Move, and um, we are um, really talking about what it looks like for us to move forward in our faith. How, how can we take one more step than maybe we took last year, or how do we take one more step in our faith than, than what we've talked you know, talked about or even taken for quite some time. And to me, it was just a, a, a reminder as, as uh, Brian spoke a couple of weeks ago and as Cody spoke last week about what it looks like for us to move from being marginally connected or kind of isolated to a really full connection what it looks like to be connected with God and his people. And really here at Stone Point, our mission is to connect people to God, to others, and service, and around the world. And it's those four things. But in order for us to connect to God in service or to connect with people outside of these walls, which is in the world, we have to be first connected to God and his people. And if we're not connected to God and his people, then we will not be the fulfillment of all that God wants us to be. And so I think those two guys did an incredible job of laying it out on what it looks like for us to be fully connected to the Lord, the benefits thereof, and the reason that we need it. And so this week, though, I want to share with you what it looks like for us to be connected in another way. And uh, I actually changed my message uh, over the last few weeks. Uh, four weeks ago, we uh, kind of laid out this series and um, then God uh, allowed me to go to Mexico. When I was in Mexico, I was actually doing my own personal reading, which I'm taking the Bible and working through it in about two years. And I, I was reading through the book of Nehemiah. And as I read through the book of Nehemiah, God really just began to stir my heart. And not only was he stirring my heart uh, through the book, but he was also stirring my heart through the circumstances. Because I'm in uh, southern Mexico with a group of people, and um, I am no expert in anything. But if there was one thing that I would prepared to do in Mexico, that was just to teach the word. And I was ready in season and out of season, but I was ready to go and I would sit and teach with any pastor that wanted to listen. I would equip any church that wanted to be equipped. And I found myself not teaching the word, but actually sitting at a station doing visual acuities in which I honestly felt a little insignificant. Like it was a place where I, I couldn't speak the language. I didn't really identify with the people, but the Lord had placed me there. And in that time, it was easy for me to uh, kind of move my vision to what I was doing there to thinking, man, wouldn't there be a more significant role? But here's the deal. What I realized that as I went through the period of the few days that I was there, that if I didn't do my role, then things just didn't work. If I, if I got distracted, then lines built up. If I got lazy or apathetic, lines built up. And then here's the deal too. If I didn't do my part, then we had a doctor at the end of the, end of the, the line that they were still waiting on me to get people there. And so it seemed like the first few hours I was there that it was somewhat pointless. Like they're going to see the doctor one way or the other. And, but then I began to realize that I had a role. 
And that role, though it seemed insignificant or seemed kind of small, it was an important role. And it wasn't, it wasn't the spotlight, it wasn't the limelight, it wasn't really the voice that I was used to. In some ways, it was the Lord just teaching me to see a, a bigger picture that was going on there in the heart of Mexico as we minister to people from all different types of, of languages and tribes and tongues and how God could use a redneck like me to even be a small part of that was an amazing thing. But God also began to take that story and he was reminding me of a few things in my life. And I want you to see this story. And if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 4. I'm going to kind of preface uh, the first few chapters for you, and I'm going to give you a brief history so that you're up to speed with me. Um, the people of Israel were God's chosen people. Uh, initially, in the very early covenant promises that he made with them, even going back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he promised them several things throughout their time. And he, one of them was land, another one was people, and the third was blessings. And those were things that God would give the people of Israel when they were obedient, when they stayed the course, when they did what they were supposed to do. Land, people, and blessings. So everybody say land. land. People. people. Blessings. blessings. Now listen, there was someone on the back row that didn't participate and may cause y'all to dance at the end. So let's try it one more time. Land. land. People. people. Blessings. blessings. The whole time I'm scanning. Yeah. So he gave them land, people, and blessings. And he said, if you do not honor me, then I'm going to take away land, people, and blessings. And get this, the people of Israel did not honor the Lord. They became very adulterous in their hearts. They began to um, give themselves over to idols, to debauchery, to orgies and the like. And God said, I'm going to remove you from the blessing. I'm going to take you out of the land. I'm going to scatter your people. And he, he did exactly that, first through the Assyrians in the northern kingdom, later the Assyrians in the southern kingdom. Later the Assyrians uh, are in full control of that area, but they're ransacked by the Babylonians. The Babylonians then come in, and as they begin to ransack the nation, they also get the, the people of Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. Um, the walls are burned. This, this land of Jerusalem, which once was a prosperous place, is now in desolation. The people who were once unified under God are now scattered. And the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, comes in, and he... He issues a judgment on the people, and he takes the people of Israel, many of them, and he scatters them and exiles them to a place in Babylonia. And they're now out of the land as God had promised. Their people are now scattered as God has promised, and now they are not getting the fulfillment of God's blessings as they're promised. And for 70 years, they live in a land of desolation and separation from the heart of Jerusalem. And so they're exiled. But here's what's interesting, is that even in their exile, God raises up a handful of people, one of them being Daniel, in which you get to see him under the, the reign of Nebuchadnezzar as a faithful servant. He's got buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and uh, Abednego. And, and those guys are faithful. But here's the deal. The Lord is preparing them and using men like Daniel to be faithful under foreign kings to hopefully one day give them an opportunity to go back. And that day will eventually come under a Persian king that has now ransacked the throne of Babylonia. And now the Persians are in charge, which you see in the middle part of Daniel. And there's a guy named Cyrus who allows uh, the people of Israel under the leadership of a priest Zerubbabel to go back. And they're going to go back and begin building the temple. And then the work is going to stop. And then you're going to see... As the work stops under Cyrus, uh, it's, it just 
it stops. And then there's a, a guy named Cambyses that comes. He's Cyrus the Great's son, and he's going to rule on the throne for about eight years, and there's no work going on in Jerusalem. No temple being rebuilt, no walls being rebuilt. And then eventually, a guy named Ezra is going to lead a charge back. And Ezra is going to go, and, and under the permission of uh, a king named Darius, which is going to be the third king of the Persian Empire, he's going to allow them to go back. And he's going to go back, and he's going to preach to the people. And get this, even though many of the people, about 45,000 of them, are back in the land, they've started the work and then stopped. Now they've kind of began going back to their old ways, almost adulterous like concepts against God. They're not honoring God. They're intermarrying with other people. And Ezra preaches, goes, hey, we got to stay on task. They begin the work again, and the work stops. And then there's a guy later on that is going to approach a king in which he's working for, and it's a guy named Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king of Persia, the fifth king, which is a guy named Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes is actually the son-in-law of the lady that you know in your Bible, Esther. And Artaxerxes is going to give permission to this guy, Nehemiah, who pleads with him as his cupbearer, a trusted servant under the lineage of this kingdom, to go back. And he's going to go back, and he's going to begin the work of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem that had never been done. So the temple's been rebuilt at this point, but the walls are desolate, they're destroyed, and he wants to go back. And he cries out to Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes says, not only can you go, but everything that you have under a Persian kingdom that you need is yours. And so he goes back. And in chapter 2, verse 17, you see um, exactly what he wants to do. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with his gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And so he sets his eyes to the task of going and rebuilding this wall. And he says, I'm going to do that. And so in Nehemiah chapter three, after he's gone to the king uh, of Persia, Artaxerxes, he's received his blessing. He's committed to go build the wall. He's now in chapter three, gotten many men on board with him. And he's cast a vision to rebuild this wall. And there are 50 men, you could count on 50 of them who say, we will build with you. We're going to stop our trades. We're not going to worry about our vocations. We're not going to do whatever. So you got basically, you got plumbers, you got firemen, you got all these different guys who go, hey, we're ready to go. And they, they set their task aside and they say, let's go rebuild. And then Verse or chapter 3, you see all of these people committing to that, which brings us to chapter 4, verse 1. In chapter 4, verse 1, um, you see that there's a guy named Samballot. And when he heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? And so here it is, they're beginning the work, they've set their hands to this task, a noble work that God has established, and very early on, here it comes, the opposition. And what's interesting is, is in chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7, you're going to see at least seven acts of opposition during this task. And so you're going to see opposition occur time and time and time and time again. But this very first act of opposition are a handful of men, one Samballot, and the other one is a guy named Tobiah. Samballot and Tobiah are most likely officials in the province of Persia. They may be a governor over the city of Jerusalem, but either way, when this work begins for the Jews, they know that they're slipping in power. And their prominence, their prestige may come to an end. And so they're very upset about the work. And they, they basically say, look, 
what are you doing? And they jeer at them and they begin to make fun of them. And in verse two, they say, what are these feeble Jews doing? And what they do there is they begin to question their ability. They essentially say, you don't have the ability to rebuild all these walls. Like, what do you think you're going to do? And they begin to jeer at them, poke at them, prod at them. And what's interesting is, and you need to take note of this, anytime that we poke, jeer, prod, make fun of, or oftentimes question people's motives or their abilities, we never do it alone. Ever. Anytime that you say something negative to someone, you always bring at least one other person in. Why? Because the more people you bring in to have an opinion formed like your own, the better you can justify what you believe. And so never, ever, ever, ever do you make fun of someone or say hateful things without bringing other people in. And so here it is, Sam Ballot has brought in not only Tobiah, but also many uh, army men from Samaria, and they begin the ridicule. And so they start by questioning their ability. Then they say, will they restore it for themselves? Then they begin to question not just their ability, but their motives. Like, hey, why are they doing this? Hey, you're doing it so you can make a name for yourself. This place has been in ruins and you don't care about what God wants. You care about making a name for yourself. I get it, Nehemiah. I get what you're doing. You're trying to become someone. And so he questions their abilities. Then he says, will they sacrifice? Meaning, what are they going to do? I mean, the altar of the Lord, the temple is all there. And he goes, well, are they going to continue to sacrifice? And what he's really saying is, is are they going to continue to pray about this? And so he's already questioned his ability and his motives. Now he's questioned his spiritual life. And what he's essentially saying is, you better make sure you're praying. Because if you're not praying, there is no ch- chance in that this is going to accomplish. Like, there is no way that this is going to be happening without you praying. And then he goes, what do they think? They're going to finish in a day? Will they finish in a day? So in a sense, he's going, you guys have established a work and you're, you have no idea what you have come up against. You have no idea what you're trying to accomplish. And so not only is he questioning his ability and their motives, but now they mock their intelligence. You are stupid for trying to take this task on. You are mere fools. You better be praying. You better have a God out there with you because there is no chance that you're going to accomplish this task. And then the latter part, will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? And so as you get this imagery, they're beginning to pick up the very first stones and lay the very foundation of the walls of Jerusalem. These guys are poking, prodding, jeering, making fun of, saying hateful things, questioning their ability, their motives, their intellect. And at the same time, he goes, I have no idea what you think you're going to do with all these burned stones, all this rubble that's around you. But if you think you're going to rebuild this wall, you got another thing coming. And then you got Tobiah, probably a little short guy, short man syndrome. That's what I'm guessing. I can't prove it. But in the Hebrew, I'm sure it's there. Uh, He was beside him and he said, yeah, hey, what are they thinking building this? If a fox goes up, he's going to break down the walls. And the fox in that time was probably like a little rat. It wasn't like a fox that you think. I mean, it's like... And so he's, he's trying to you know, crack a little joke, and I'm sure there's a handful of people laughing, but most of them are probably going, um, hey, dude, uh, just, just stick to not saying things, you know? But his point was, is it doesn't matter what you build, it's just going to be toppled. We will push it over with our fingertips. We are not worried about the rebuilding. And then, of course, Nehemiah, being the godly man that he is, look at his response. I mean, his response, like most of us godly men, right? Because think about your response. Here it is. These guys have questioned your motives, your will, your intellect, your abilities. 
every tough man who loves Jesus is going to what? Say something back. Oh, yeah? You, you want to talk? You throw down your tools and you go, let's throw down, buddy. And then you say a few choice words and then you ask for forgiveness later. That's right. <laughs> but that's not what he does. Look what he does. In verse four, he says, hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let no sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. He goes, God, they're not questioning just my abilities. They're not just questioning my motives, but they are questioning the very work that you have established at our fingertips. And God, I am asking that you would speak on behalf of this matter and I will not say a word. And all too often, instead of letting God be the vindictive judge that he is and let him deal with our problems, what do we do? We create a bigger problem. And so he seems to hold his tongue here, which is something that I think most of us right here could, could take this and then partner with James 3, and you might have your lesson for the day, okay? Because there are some of us in here that we just need to keep our mouths closed because we're either the ones poking or jeering or we're the ones responding back about our, our motives, our intellects, and our abilities. And there are some wives that are like, don't do that. It's a bad time, Okay. But look what he does in verse six. So we built the wall. Like he doesn't even respond. He turns to the Lord. He prays, God, do something here that only you can. You bring vengeance, but we're going to continue the work. So we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to have its height for all the people who had in mind to do the work. So here it is. All of these different men, all of these different trades, all of these different backgrounds, stopping their vocations. And they had what? One mission. That's it. One mission was to build the wall. And what's interesting is, is I've thought in my mind, man, what would this wall have looked like? You got 50 different men, some of them plumbers, some of them firemen, some of them preachers, possibly, and they come together. And I can promise you that if you take a fireman and a plumber, they're not going to build the wall the same way. Some of you know firemen, don't you? Can I get an amen there? Some of you know plumbers. Some of you know preachers. And so there's no doubt that all these different men, all these different backgrounds, they have what? The same mission, but I'm sure they have different ways to accomplish it. But in this, this, this point, I love this verse. They come together for the same mission they build at half its height. The idea is, is one doesn't get ahead of the other. One doesn't think that their portion of the wall is more significant. So there's not a rush to get my part of the wall done and then watch everybody else do theirs. It's the idea that we're going to work on this. And so I might get a little bit ahead of someone to my left, and I might get a little behind of someone on my right. But when I get a little bit behind of someone on my right, then they're going to stop and come help me. And when the person on the left gets a little bit behind me, then I'm going to stop my work and go help them. And our goal is to accomplish one mission, one purpose of solidifying the walls around Jerusalem all at the same time. And so they do this incredible work. And as they're building, guess what? The opposition's not going away. And so in verse 7, you have Samballot, you have Tobiah, you have the Arabs, you have the Ammonites, you have the Ashdodites, and they heard the repair of the walls was going forward and the breaches were beginning to be closed and they were very angry. They can sense the, the idea of power slipping away. They can see the, ball, the, the walls are ruined, once in ruins now beginning to be built up and they are frustrated by this. And so what do they do? They plan, they plot. They scheme. In verse 8, they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. 
And look at the response again. The response is not the response that you and I would oftentimes have, but the response is similar to verse four and five. And that is, we prayed to our God and set a guard's protection against them day and night. And so they, they, they said, God, we need your help. And then they also did something and they set a guard there day and night. And so there was a response. It was, we're gonna continue the work. But look, the opposition didn't just come from Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, and all their enemies. Look where the opposition was coming from. In verse 10, in Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much trouble, but, but by ourselves, we'll not be able to rebuild the wall. And so here it is from, from Judah, from their own people. There's people now going, listen, you don't have enough resources. You don't have a, enough ability. I'm not sure you can accomplish it. You've started it, but I'm not sure you're going to be able to finish it. From their own people, there begins to come doubts and impossible accusations and, and poor motives. Then in verse 11, and our enemy said, hey, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Like, hey, we're going to jump on them and they're not going to see it coming. Verse 12, and at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So the goal was for people in Judah, from their own people in Jerusalem and from their enemies, stop the work, stop. Don't do this. Don't continue on. And so Nehemiah, he stops the work. He stops it. But he stops it for a reason. And you're going to see that reason in, in verse 13. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed the people around their clans with their swords, the spears, and their bows. And it brings me to lesson number one of six lessons that you and I can apply to everything that God's called us to. And so if God has called you to a work, whether it be a work in your marriage, whether it be a work in your home, whether it be a work as a parent, whether it be a work to start something new that God's called you to, whether it be a work in his church, you can bank on these lessons applying to every single work. And the very first thing is this, is that there, um, there where you have a great work of God, every great work will face some opposition. And what's interesting is the opposition will come from a variety of different ways. And so in verse 13, he sets men in the low spaces. What that means is, is he says, I want you to stop the work and I'm going to prove a point real quick. And the point that he proves is, is men, I want you to go home and I want you to get your wives and I want you to come out in front of your home where you stand in the low places, not in the places where we have everything secure, but in the low places. And I, I want you to get your brooms. I want you to get your mops. You tell your wife to get her skillet. You get anything you can. And we're going to stand and anybody that claims to come and cross the low places is going to cross us first. And so they say, we're going to stand right here because they know there's opposition and they hear where the opposition's coming from, but they make a point. We have set the task of rebuilding this wall and you may stop us from rebuilding the wall, but in order to do so, you must kill us first. And so they were that serious about the commitment they have made to build this wall, even in spite of opposition. As I was reading and preparing for this, though, it reminded me of Stone Point Church. I remember the opposition, the very first time we ever met with my wife and I and 11 other people. I remember the people in my own family, people that I knew that cared deeply for me who said, man, I'm not sure you need to do this. Like, I mean, financially, like, are you prepared to do this? I mean, are y'all, are you going to be stable enough? How are you going to provide for yourself? I mean, what are you going to do if this thing never gets off the ground? And I remember my response is the Lord gave me the first confirmation I ever needed in his word in Matthew 6, that if he can care for the birds of the air, how much more can he care for me? 
And I knew from the very beginning of promising God's word that he had called me to work. And although there was opposition, even within the own ranks of people who loved me, that he'd called me to that and I must move forward. But as we move forward, there's opposition from people, not just enemies, people who didn't like me in my past, but also enemies from even people that you would have thought would have been for me. Churches that didn't want us here. People who said to me, I don't think this works to get off the ground. Some of you, even in this room, who said, this is the most ridiculous thing that I could ever think of. Why do we do that? I can't tell you the statements that I heard, the times that I heard, man, do we really need another church in this community? There was much opposition, but I remember the call that God placed on my life, and it was a clear call from him in his word to press on, and so we did so. And so, so does Nehemiah. And in verse 15, after they took a stand and there was no opposition that came, verse 15, they press on. And when our enemies heard that, that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And so God proved that even in spite of opposition, they were to move on. And so they do so, which brings us to lesson number two. If God calls you to a great work, he'll protect you in that work. If God calls you to it, then guess that nothing can thwart it. The enemies can't thwart it. Your own family can't thwart it. It's, it's his work. And so from that day on, verse 16, half of my servants were, were, went to construction. Half of them held spears, shields, bows, coats of mail. All the leaders stood behind them, the whole house of Judah. They were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon in the other hand. You get this idea? Like they're laboring with one hand and some of them carrying weapons in the other hand. It's an incredible picture of the work that's going on. You've got some that are standing and they're just guarding. You've got others that are, are working with one hand and protecting in the other hand. And then each, verse 18, of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles, to the officials, and to the rest of the people, the work is great and it's widely spread and we are separated on the wall. Like we all have our parts. Far from one another in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, then we'll gather and get this, our God will fight for us which brings you to lesson number three. If God calls you to a work, then keep on moving in spite of opposition. Why? Because he'll protect you. And then not only that, you'll know that the work is not going to be accomplished by your strength alone anyway. You should hear this. The work that God calls you to is never meant or designed to be accomplished by your own strength which reminds me as I'm working through this text, as I'm reading, as I'm preparing of Ephesians chapter six. And I'm not gonna read it all to you, but I think it's worth noting. In verse 10, it says, finally be strong in the Lord, the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God. Then he says, this is how you take your stand against the principalities of this dark world. So against the heavenly realms, like there is, there is much opposition, not just physical, but spiritual. Like there are many things that, that, that the enemy wants to prevent you from doing, that God is encouraging you to do. And in verse 10, it says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the day of evil, having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore with the fasten the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, shoes for your feet that are shod, they're ready, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, of which can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take up the helmet of salvation. You see all these things. You, you have the belt of truth. You have the helmet of salvation. You have the sword. Of, uh, I mean, you have the uh, helmet of salvation, the, the breastplate of righteousness, all of these places. Place Your feet are shod. They're ready. They're equipped with the gospel of peace. All of those defensive weapons. And then he says, and then take up what? The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. 
And the picture that I get here in Nehemiah is them having a weapon in one hand and their work in the other, but it reminds me of what our mission is. Look, listen to me. You are not meant to accomplish the work in your own strength, but you should have your abilities and, and your talents and your tools all in one hand, and you should have the word of God in the other. All too often in ministry and in your lives and in my life, I, I rely so much on my gifts, abilities, that I wing stuff. Journey group leaders, how many times have you just shown up and you winged it? If you do it again, just cancel the night. Do me a favor. Cancel it. Because God, God does not need us winging it. He needs us showing up prepared as best we can in our right hand, trusting that his word is all we need in the left hand. Like that is the work that he accomplishes through his power, not our own strength. And all too often, the reason we get tired, the reason we get discouraged, the reason we get frustrated, the reason we get worn out, and the reason we quit is because you and I have been doing it all on our own strength the whole time. And you've not seen some supernatural act of God. Why? Because you hadn't relied on God one time. And so for every single person that's given up over the last five years, I know the reason. You don't have to tell me. I know it. It's because, it's because we've not relied on our own strength. And that's me too. Like, I'm not just telling you it's for me. And so when you do things out of your own strength, it doesn't work. At the same time, look at verse 21. So we labored and we worked, and half of them held spears from the break of dawn until the, until the stars came out. Verse 22, I also said to the people of the time, let every man and his servant pass the night with Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So get this. What's interesting is, is that if God calls you to work, he's going to protect you in that work, but he's also giving you the power through his might to do the work. At the same time, though, listen. He's expecting you to do what? Accomplish that work through tireless grit. He says, we labored. Verse 23, he says, so neither I nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon in his right hand. He goes, there was never a point where we took a break, showered, cleaned up, and came back the next day. There was never a point where we went and had sandwiches and a picnic and said, hey, you know what? We'll accomplish this task in a couple of weeks. They believed that the time was now. What's interesting enough, I didn't mention this in the first service, but the last core value that we have at Stone Point is that the time is now. It's not next week. It's not next year. But if we're going to make a difference for the gospel, that it's now. We don't have rest over here. No, it's, it's a work that God's calling us to. And he believed that. And they said, we're going to accomplish it with tireless grit hard work. Planting this church is the hardest work I have ever done. Almost every few months, I call the pastor of my former church in Dallas, and I apologize to him because the laziness that I showed in ministry there. Because the work that I have put in here is a tireless grit. It never stops. It is something that I always set my feet to, and it's tireless. There are days that I want to give up. There are days where I want to quit. There are days where I'm ready to move on. Why? Because something on would be easier. 
But the Lord says, no, you're going to keep your hand to the work, and you're going to trust me with your other hand, that I'm going to give you the strength. And by God's grace and his grace alone, he's done that. And Nehemiah said in verse uh, 16 of chapter 5, he says, indeed, I also continue to work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. He goes, I didn't even, I didn't even look to my own personal agenda. He goes, I just set my eyes to the work that God had. And so here's what's interesting. Anytime God calls you to work, not only is he going to call you to that work in the midst of opposition, he's going to protect you from it. He's going to give you the strength to do it with your left hand, relying on the spirit of God, his word, his people, prayer, the Holy Spirit. But he goes, also, you can't be lazy and slothful. And interesting enough, oftentimes in our lives or in ministry, you have one of two things. You have people who go, I have an utter dependence on God's word, and then they're lazy, which doesn't work. Or they say, I have an utter dependence on my own strength abilities, and then they don't tie into God's power. Does it make sense? And God designed it to be both, that you're always getting a daily nourishment through God's word, through his people, and the spirit. At the same time, you get up and you chase a lion every day. You get up and you run. You get up and you fight. You get up and you have motivation because you believe in what you're accomplishing. And that's the picture that he gave. And in Nehemiah chapter 6, it kind of skips over a chapter because in a chapter it addresses the opposition of the poor and the government and the demands they were putting and Nehemiah's response to that, which is an incredible one. But it brings you to chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And it says, Now when Sambal and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of the enemies heard that I had built the wall and there was no breach left in it, although at this time, he says, I had not put the doors to the gates, Sambal and Geshem sent to me saying, Hey, come, let us meet together in the plain of Ono, uh, but they intended to do me harm. And so God gives this incredible re revelation to him, apparently. And I sent messages to them saying, look at it, incredible, incredible. I am doing a great work and I cannot come. Let's say it again. I am doing a great work and I cannot come. Do you believe that? Like, do you believe that's where God has you in your life, in your marriage, in your family, in this place, this church, this body of believers, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. And they send to him four more times and four more times he gives the same response. I am doing a great work and I will not come down. In a sense, what he says is, I am connected to the mission that God's called me to. I'm connected to God, his word, prayer, and the Holy Spirit. And I have no time to listen to voices in the cheap seats. In a sense... If you want to speak from the high place in the arena with your cheap ticket, then you need to know that I'm not going to listen. I'm going to listen to those that are in the arena with me. One of the greatest truths in here, if you own a business or you're a leader or God has called you to something, one lady in her marriage came up to me and she said, I have every reason to leave in my marriage. But she said, and I have many people saying I should, but she said, God has called me to this work and I shall not come down. The deal is, is this, when God calls you to a great work, don't get distracted from it. And in verses 15 of 16 of chapter 6, you see that they built this wall around Jerusalem in 52 days. Wow. 52 days. Non-stop opposition non-stop work, weapons in their right hand or left hand, tools in their right hand, working, 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 tireless grit, trusting God. And it reminds me of the church, 1 Corinthians 12, a bunch of members doing its part. 
Not one insignificant, not one unimportant, but every single part needing to take their part of the wall. It reminds me of that. The body of Christ, the church, Christ is the head and we are its members. If God accomplishes the work around the world, it's going to be through you and me. If God reaches a village in Indonesia, it's going to be through me. If he makes a difference in lives in the mountains of Mexico, it's going to be through me and through you. He's going to use his church to accomplish his purposes. If he's going to make a difference in this community, he's going to use us, the body of Christ. But here's the deal. The body of Christ is only best when every single person takes their part of the wall. Think about it. Many different gifts, many different backgrounds, many different people, different raisings, different family structures all coming together to use our gifts for a common purpose, a mission, a good one. But the work cannot be produced in and of ourselves. Like it will not be accomplished by our own strength. We can't take credit for it because it's God's work, nor should we try. It requires grit from every single part of its members. Grit. Not because ministry is easy, not because it's fun, because quite frankly, it's not always fun and sometimes it's very tiring. And so it's easy to say, I'm done. I cannot serve here anymore. I can't serve in this place. I cannot take my part of the wall. But the good news is even though we fail as members to take our part in the wall, the scripture says that the enemy's plans will never thwart God's plan. Matthew chapter 16, even the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. And so we keep pressing on, over, overcoming the opposition, taking our part of the wall, not getting distracted by life, not getting distruct, distracted by people or the frustrations or the very problems that come because we have a greater connection to God and his people now. The people around us, as we serve with them day in and day out, we realize that they're not the people that we thought they were. And they got more problems than I had. But praise God, we have a common purpose. And we're not discouraged by our lack of talent. We're not discouraged by our lack of abilities, our lack of resources, or by what other people say we should do or don't do. Because God has called us to a great task. Do you see the picture here? Do you see the problem? Because it's not enough to see the picture and then not identify the problem. The picture is, is we need every one of our members doing its part because that's the way God created it. The problem is, is when there's a breach in the walls because members don't do their part. But let me ask you a question. What if I gave you a motivation that you hadn't seen yet to do it? The motivation that God reminded me of, which I want to give you now. I skipped over a verse intentionally in chapter 4, verse 14. And as Nehemiah had all the men and the women and all the people in those clans from those 50 different men stand around that wall with their skillets and their brooms and their mops, they looked to Tobiah. They looked Sanballat. They looked the Arabs in the eye, and they said, if you want to come here, then you come. But by golly, I'm not moving. You'll have to kill me first before you, you think I'm leaving the work that God's called me to. And here's why. And he shares it with us, and I'm so grateful for it. I looked up, and I arose, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. 
Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember the one who's called us to this task. He is glorious. He is worthwhile. He is worthy. And then you fight. And who do you fight for? If you fight for yourself, by golly, no. Because he's not creating a culture about me. And so the culture of me church needs to move. And the reason we serve, the reason we stand in our place is why? For your brothers and for your sons and for your daughters and for your wives and for your homes. Listen to me. The reason I press on is for my children. The reason I don't leave my part of the wall is because of my wife and the call that God's placed on my heart and my life. And listen, there are plenty of voices inside and out of this side, this place that would say, hey, stop the work. There are plenty of places of discouragement coming of saying, I can't. Trust me, I got it. I got a line of excuses why I can't do it. But the reason I get up every day and I work hard with the the gifts, the talents, the resources God's given me in my right hand and the word of God in the left hand is because I truly believe that the thing that God has started here should impact my grandkids. So my prayer is, is that you would leave this place and the only move that you would bust is not 14 seconds of dancing here in a minute. No, the only move that you would bust is that you would really take an introspective look and ask yourself, what am I leaving? What am I leaving to this next generation? What am I leaving to my kids? What am I leaving to my daughters, my sons, my wife? And listen, if it's money, then hey, it perishes. If it's land, it perishes. But if it's a mission that God established and a work that he creates at your hands, then listen, it will last for all of eternity. And my prayer is that you would be a part of it. Amen? There's one guy who I absolutely love, a guy who I remember discipling early on and was in Durney group with him. I wish I was with him more. I text him in Mexico, and I say, man, I wish you were here with me because I'm so grateful for the work that God has established through your hands. I'm so grateful for the faithfulness that you've shown. And I want to share just a snippet of his story now because uh, I pray it's an encouragement to all of us in here who we doubt our gifts and our abilities and even more the portion of the wall that God's given us. And uh, I just pray that it'll be encouragement to you. So let, let's close with it. Go time. All right. My name's uh, Evan Anderson. Um, I'm fairly a new believer in Christ. I, I think 2012, I gave my life to the Lord, and I really uh, had a uh, hunger to serve His body and uh, any way I could. And basically, it started out just parking cars, putting up chairs, whatever, whatever I could help out doing. That's all I wanted to do. And um, I can't remember exactly what happened. I think I just asked Brian Tate, I was like, hey, is there anywhere else I could serve? Um, and he said, well, we definitely need large group teachers in the kids' ministry. And I was like, what? There's nothing, you know, what else? is there something else? He's like, just just um, come watch Amy, his wife, and just see what you think, you know. And so I was like, all right, I guess. I don't don't know if that's really my cup of tea or whatever, you know, but Honestly, I was just like, I wanted to serve, so I just trusted the Lord. And I, I mean, I, the, basically the flesh was saying, no, I don't want to do that. But the Spirit was like, 
why not give it a shot and just trust the Lord to guide you? And that's exactly what I did because I am never been a, I guess you could say the type of guy to get in front of anybody and talk, much less kindergarten through fifth graders and especially dance and sing and act silly. I just, I don't know. But I trust the Lord, so I went and watched Amy Tate, and so that was a little intimidating. I was like, all right, I don't, <laughs> I definitely don't think I'll be as good as her, but so I did that for, I think, maybe two or three weeks, and it was my shot, I guess you could say, to do it, and it wasn't that hard to get up there and read down off the paperwork. Anybody can do that, but it was getting to the, where you could, uh, I guess, growing in the Lord more and more, it just came more natural while all we're doing really is teaching Jesus. That's all we want to do, right? And just uh, going going over what we was going over up on stage started getting easier and easier. And I don't know, I guess you could say by a month of doing it, I really enjoyed it. And it's it's all a praise to the Lord. Like, cause like I said, I myself, I didn't want to do it, but um, just trusting the Lord to give me the words and what to say to this, the kids and I can't stress enough how much I was not the guy to get up on stage and talk to kids, but just by truly just giving it to the Lord and asking him to guide me and uh, show me how to do it, that's the only way that I can do it. And I just praise him. Amen. In Mexico, God taught me to remind myself of, of someone like Evan. He would say, man, I, I'm not sure my part's real significant. I'm not really sure I'm that good at it. I felt like that. But in retrospect, to see that God uses even the insignificant portions that we think are unimportant to build his part of the wall. And so if you're here and you're a member at Stone Point Church and you signed a covenant, you didn't covenant to me. You covenanted to the Lord that you would take a part of the wall, not five parts of the wall, but a, car, a part of the wall. And you said, I will, say, I will serve faithfully on God's mission because you believe it outlasts you. And I just want to call you back to that. Not out of guilt, not out of shame, not out of frustration, but out of commitment that you made to the Lord and his people to be connected to him, walking in truth with your talents and gifts in one hand and the word of God in the other. And my prayer is, is that you would bust a move. And if you're not serving, that you would begin serving and if you're serving too much, that you would step aside so someone else could serve and pick up your portion of the wall. So let me pray for you and encourage you. God, we love you, and I thank you for today. And I pray, God, that you would help us, Lord, to not simply be connected to, to you and your people and forget that we still have, we have service to do, that there's a portion of the wall that has to be built. God, I'm thankful for Nehemiah. I'm most thankful for example because he was no scholar. He was not a, a preacher. He was just an ordinary man who was faithful. He had get great character, great resolve, and great grit. He never gave up. He just kept pushing forward in the face of opposition because he knew you had called him to something that outlasts him. And I'm thankful for the narrative that we're able to read, but I'm more thankful that there are men and women in this room that remind me of a guy like him. And I pray, God, that you would grow us up into maturity. That God, that the parts that we lack, that God, that you would bring. And I pray, God, we would give it all to you by prayer, by fasting, that we would just commit to, to seeing the work that you want to do here, and that we would trust that if you begin a work, that you're going you're to accomplish it. And so, Lord, I look forward to see how you move and how you, 
how you mold us and shape us, and Lord, how you provide in places where we, we seem to lack. I love you and I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.